This morning we continue considering the message of the prophet of Hosea, that 8th century B.C. prophet writing to the northern kingdom of Israel, who if you've been with us for any of these weeks, it has been a relentless call to repentance. Again and again with creative means and metaphors and images of calling the people of God to repent of their sin, to change their ways, and all of that call coming with a great sense of urgency. That there is a looming judgment coming for the people of God should they not turn from their sin and look to Him and to His worship faithfully. And so Hosea has been challenging to preach through because each week we're reminded that he has been called the prophet of doom. He's bringing a hard and heavy message. And oh, how tempting it would be to just gloss over some of these difficult chapters. But remember, it's the Word of God given to us as the people of God, and we learn a lot about ourselves and we learn a lot about the nature of our God and what's been given, us, given to us in this passage. So this morning we'll read in its entirety Hosea chapter 10. Again, the, the decoder ring reminds us when we come across some of the, the vivid language here and the, the language that makes you uncomfortable. You have to remember these are references to the covenant curses promised in Deuteronomy 28 for those who would abandon faith in the Lord. And so with that in mind, give your attention to Hosea chapter 10. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. And as his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred Stones, that is idolatry. Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. Then they will say, We have no king because we did not revere the Lord. But even if we had a king, what could he do for us? They make many promises take false oaths, and make agreements. Therefore, lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. The people who live in Samaria fear for the, golden, for the calf idol of Beth-Avon. Its people will mourn over it, and so will its idolatrous, idolatrous priests. Those who had rejoiced over its splendor because it is taken from them into exile. It will be carried to Assyria as tribute for the great king. Ephraim will be disgraced. Israel will be ashamed of its foreign alliances. Samaria's king will be destroyed, swept, swept away like a twig on the surface of the waters. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah, 
You have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. So I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim. Judah must plow and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until He comes and showers His righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. The roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. As Shalman devastated Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to the ground with their children, so will it happen to you, Bethel, because your wickedness is great. When that day dawns, the king of Israel will be completely destroyed. Let's pray for the Lord's help in understanding His challenging word. Lord, would you be our teacher this morning? So many difficult things to overcome. History, language, imagery, promises of threat and curse. And yet, Lord, the glimmering hope of the promise of your unfailing love and of your covenant faithfulness. So, Lord, would you help all these swirling parts and pieces somehow make sense for us in light of your word? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you've learned much about yourself as we've been looking at Hosea, but, but Hosea has sought to teach us much about ourselves, to teach the human person much about the human heart. And um, time and time again, chapter after chapter, there are these echoes of who we really are as he serves as this kind of mirror that shows us the human heart and all of its sinfulness. Early in chapter 1, actually I think it was our first or second week, one of those things that Hosea taught us, you may remember it, was this. That prosperity can harden the human heart. Prosperous times, the gift of abundance, can find us complacent and spiritually lethargic. And he's going to revisit that message in our first verse of chapter 10 this morning. That prosperity can harden the human heart. Listen, to what he gets, listen again to what he says in, in verse 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. And as his fruit increased, he built more altars. And as his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. 
Prosperity can harden the heart. Times of abundance can make us lethargic spiritually. Moses had warned the people of God of this very thing in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 to 14. Listen to what Moses told the Israelites. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. So Moses had prepared the people for what you and I all know to be true from our own human experience. Prosperity can harden the heart. It's in times of abundance. It's in times of generous provision that we can grow lethargic spiritually. We can grow complacent spiritually. Rick Phillips in his commentary on chapter 10 of Hosea says this, Israel's earthly prosperity had fostered spiritual decline. Instead of living with thanksgiving to God for His many blessings, the people forgot Him, just as Moses had warned might happen. So we learn about ourselves, even in what this 8th century B.C. prophet is saying to Israel. It is the times of prosperity in which our heart can grow complacent, and lethargic. Have you found that to be true? It was true of them, and it can be true of every one of us. Listen, there was an example of this very same principle and concept in the national news yesterday and in local news this week. And for the few of you who know what I'm going to talk about, this is for you. Everyone else, just bear for me for just a mo- bear with me for just a moment. But the name Tyler from Spartanburg communicated this same message as the 8th century prophet, or actually it would be Dabo's response to Tyler from Spartanburg that was so Hosea-like in what he said. The sum of, of what the Clemson football coach would say to the critic over the phone was this. To that critic, he said, you are part of the problem. Your expectation is greater than your appreciation. That is your problem. Now, most of you don't know what any of that is, but the sum of it is the theme of Hosea, is that their expectation, bless us, bless us, give us what we want, had exceeded their appreciation for God's provision and faithfulness to them. And then they thought, well, we can be like the Canaanites, and we can worship Baal, and we can double dip. We can get God's blessing and get Baal's blessing. And remember, the point of Hosea is to say, you have abandoned the one true God. He will not share you with any other God, and He will not share His worship with any other God, because the Lord our God is a jealous God. And so even in our own culture, there are, there are lessons of prosperity and how it ruins a person. 
Look at anybody who's won, who's won a, a lottery. Do a little word search on Google for how it turns out for people when they win the lottery and win the big dollars. They tend to come to ruin. They can't take such instant prosperity. So prosperity can harden the heart. It can ruin the heart. Now, continuing in Hosea chapter 10, we're going to learn a few more things about the people of God, both Israel and us, and then some things where the Lord shows and proves Himself despite that. But concerning ourself and Israel, there are at least four things. The first being that being blessed and being prosperous can harden our heart. And we see that in in verse 1, which, by the way... The word there, depending on the translation that you read, but it can be translated two ways. One is that Israel was a luxuriant vine. That is to say, flourishing, growing, spreading in a healthy way. But the same word can also mean a destructive vine, a reckless kind of vine. But I want you to see that either way, whichever uh, interpretation of the word you have, the outcome is really the same. It's the appearance of flourishing, but with destructive consequences. Now, in the state of South Carolina, we are very familiar with a destructive vine that flourishes. And the name of that vine is kudzu, right? Kudzu has been called the vine that ate the South. Did you know that? And by the way, kudzu, I researched this a little bit this week and was reminded of kudzu. I actually had a conversation with someone at the hymn sing. I don't know if they're here today. We were talking about kudzu. And then it came up in this week's text about the, this vine, this luxuriant, flourishing vine that is destructive. So, so a lesson on kudzu. Did you know that kudzu was just a great idea? In the 1800s, kudzu came to us from Japan. It was a gift. It was the miracle vine that could do anything. And kudzu was known for at least three benefits. It was a high protein content uh, for, for cattle fodder. So they said, hey, this is nutritious. This is good for our cattle. It was also an ornamental plant to be grown on southern porches to create shade from the heat of the south. And then thirdly, it was believed it would help greatly with erosion and the erosion of soil. A threefold blessing for this plant. But here's the story of kudzu. Here's what happened. When the boll weevil began to devastate cotton crops and people abandoned their fields, the climate and the weather allowed for kudzu to go crazy. And it proved to be what? A luxuriant vine, flourishing, spreading everywhere with its foliage and its roots. But it was destructive. And you can't even leave our parking lot and not look right or left without seeing kudzu everywhere and all of its destruction. But by the way, there's an illustration within the illustration. Kudzu was a great idea, right? On paper, It was a great idea. And now it's out of control. It cannot be contained. What was called the miracle weed early on, in 1953, the United States Department of Agriculture 
removed kudzu from a list of suggested cover plants and began listing it as a weed in 1970. And so the great idea turned bad. Illustration there about any number of things in our lives. Sin can be like kudzu. It can flourish in the sense that it grows and it consumes and it dominates. And it tends to come into our lives because it was a great idea or an innocent seeming idea. No harm's going to come from this. And before you know it, kudzu, that luxuriant vine, is devastating, choking out the life of all the desired plants, the fruit-bearing plants that you would want in your garden. And so the people of God are called this luxuriant but destructive vine. We can bear much fruit, but if we're kudzu and we're choking out what God intends of His people, then we are destructive. And the Lord would have no part of that. The Lord says that they are prone to wander. And it's that imagery again in verse 1 of a sprawling, shooting vine. Israel is, is, is being blessed and those vines are growing everywhere. And they're wandering and they're creeping towards Assyria and they're creeping towards Canaan. And it's just drawn to this idolatrous worship, to these other peoples, to the kings that they have. And in that way, we understand the hymn that says, Lord, I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And that's always been true of Israel. It's always been true of God's covenant people. It's true of us. We have a wandering nature, and that's not good. Thirdly, he says in verse 4, that God's people are prone to quarrel. And this is that language of lawsuits springing up, or conflict, depending on the version that you have in front of you. We're reading from the NIV. And it says lawsuits are springing up all over the place. That's the kind of fruit that this wicked, destructive vine is bearing. Quarreling spirits, fighting one person with another, one party with another. And the Lord says, this is not good. This is not how my people should be in the earth. You're to bear a righteous fruit, but you've become a quarrelsome, conflicting people. And then fourthly, and probably most uncomfortably, God's people are prone to perversion. And he mentions in these middle verses of chapter 10 two kinds of perversion. He references uh, Gibeah and Beth-Avon, but without any comment. So to fill in some of that backstory, first I would point you to Judges chapter 19, which is a very difficult passage to read. But the two, the two big sins he's referencing here concerning God's people is that they're given to debauchery, evil wickedness, sexual perversion, and they're given to idolatry. And he's pounded the drum of idolatry over and over again, chapter by chapter by chapter. But if you read Judges 19 on your own today, you will find horrific stories of the failure of a Levite and of the people of God 
to protect innocent life, to protect female innocent life, and to give people over to perversions, to rape, to abuse, and to death. And he says, this is his way of saying, you are a people of wickedness. This is evil. This is wrong. And you're my covenant people in the earth. You were to represent me. You were to image me. And you've perverted the image. So you put all that together, and that's a heavy-hitting message. It's an uncomfortable message, but it's that Israel, the people of God, are a wandering people. Though God has blessed them and made them prosperous, they're wandering from Him, they're quarreling with one another, and they've perverted worship and the good gifts that God has given them. And he says in his own language, he says, Israel is fallowed ground. They are fallowed ground. That is, they are unplowed. They are hard-hearted. They are unseeded. They are unproductive land. And of course, this is all agricultural. Some of you get this more than others. But he's saying Israel is this hard, dry, unseeded, unproductive, worthless land. You are to be rich and abundant and blessed by me, and you are the opposite of that. And he says all that in verse 11 of chapter 10. So that's the people. We put the, the prophet puts the mirror up, and he shows them who they are. And anytime we see them for who they are, it causes us to be honest about there's a whole lot of that that's true of us, that's true of our own sinfulness and our own hearts. But then he talks about the Lord, Hosea does. And he says at least two things about the Lord. He says the Lord seeks His people as wandering sheep. This is familiar with the language of Isaiah 53 verse 6. You know this language where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We're wandering people. We're like sheep that don't know how good they have it with the shepherd that they have and the pasture that they put in. But the Lord is seeking those wandering sheep. And what kind of people is it that the Lord seeks? Well, John chapter 4, if you remember Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus says this interesting comment in verse 23. To the woman, He says, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And we learn from that that the Lord is very concerned about His worship, how His people worship Him, and who those worshipers are. So the Lord is seeking His wandering sheep as He is seeking worshipers, faithful and true worshipers of Him. And if they are not faithful, if they are not true to His worship, Hosea then says that the Lord destroys their falsehoods and their false worship. Now that's the language that we read, and some of it was pretty stark, about tearing down their places of worship so that thorns and thistles grow up over them. 
The Lord says he will break the necks of their altars. Strong visual language saying, I detest my people's worship because it is not me they're worshiping. They're worshiping Baal. And the Lord says he is seeking a people. We know that he seeks worshipers of his true name. And here he tells us, like a jealous husband, he will tear down and destroy all that is false, all that is crooked, because he will not share his people with any other God, and he will not share his worship with any other God. Hosea essentially is saying this, enough is enough, people. Enough is enough. The Lord has proved himself faithful to you over and over, and you are a stubborn heifer. You are like hardened, unplowed ground. You are worthless. And as Joshua said, it's time to choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Are you going to worship the other gods of the other nations? Or are you going to worship the one true God who has proved himself faithful over and over and over? And that's that hard message of Hosea. It's time to respond. It's time to choose. You can't continue in the way that you've been living and the person that you've been. And that's the third and final point. Therefore, Hosea says in verse 12, it's time. It's time. It's time to know the Lord, he said in chapter 6, verse 3. It's time to press on to truly know the Lord. Not to know about Him, not to know about His worship, but to know Him and to know His worship. And secondly, he says in verse 12, it's time to truly seek the Lord. Stop seeking after Baal. Stop seeking after the approval of other nations and their kings. Stop putting your trust in princes and chariots and horses and strengths of armies. It's time to know the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord. Enough is enough with the lip service, Israel. It's time to be the people of God. In our own language, we might say, no more pretending. No more going through the motions. It's time to be the people of God, to know the Lord and to seek the Lord. So in thinking about how to illustrate this from a, from a real lived experience or from a historical experience, I came back in my mind to, to a story I've told you before and that many of you already know. But it's the story of the Wesley brothers where the Methodist faith first came to us. And you know the story of, of Charles and John Wesley, who in their time at Oxford, fervent religious men helped to found what was called the Holy Club, right? Where students would gather together and, and they had 22 questions that they would rehearse together in the way of, of an accountability group. Good questions. Nothing wrong with the questions whatsoever. You can find them online. And they did that. And they were in ministry and doing ministry. They had come with Oglethorpe over to Georgia to do ministry. And their conclusion of their ministry was, who's going to minister to us? 
we don't feel this at all as being genuine or as being real. And it was through the influence of some Moravians who talked about justification by faith that the Wesley brothers began to realize it's not about holiness through methods. It's not about holiness through effort. It's not about my merit and my achievement in keeping 22 questions that earns me peace with God. It's about justification by faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Both those brothers would be converted as ministers. That they had been very religious, very active, very busy in the life of the church. But here it is. They didn't know the Lord. And they didn't seek the Lord by the Lord's means. And so it's the same message. What Hosea was speaking then in the 8th century B.C., the Wesley brothers experienced, and perhaps some of us in this room have or need to experience that same truth. It's not holiness by effort. It's holiness by justification by faith in Jesus. And so the appeal of Hosea this morning in chapter 10, his call upon us is enough is enough. You may be a religious person. You may volunteer for every event the church puts on. But Hosea presses, do you know the Lord? Do you seek the Lord? Or, like 8th century Israel, are you just a busy religious person? You see, those are two very different things. It's why Isaiah says in chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and He will have mercy on them. And to our God, for He will freely pardon. It's the same appeal. Come to the Lord. Come to the Lord. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says the same thing. Let us throw off everything that hinders, even if it's 22 questions in the Holy Club, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. It's time. It's time to know the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord. Not going through motions, not playing or pretending a part. Hosea says it's time to seek the Lord, to sow seeds of righteousness, to bear fruit for Him. Let's pray that that would be true of us and of our church family. <clears throat> Lord, we thank You for Your Word and the truth of it and how much we need to be reminded, Lord, that it's not holiness by our own effort. It's not being able to answer questions in the affirmative of how we lived this week. But Lord, it's trust in Jesus and His perfect righteousness. And so Lord, to Him we sing our song of praise that we might know Him, that we might seek Him. 
And we ask this and we pray it together in his holy name. Amen.